TED Audio Collective. I mean, I actually came out to my parents as white when I was 14. Just I was like, right, I'm going to fully identify as a Brit. And I took a scholarship to Eton College, which, you know, I don't know if listeners know, is like probably the whitest British school. You know, you wear tailcoats. And that was me mm -hmm. trying to be British. And I erased everything else from my system. This is Amru Al-Khadi. Yep, that's an Arabic name. Amru is an author and screenwriter. I'm also British Iraqi. It's very exciting and rare to have two British Iraqis in conversation with each other. Yeah. Totally. Um, when I was growing up in the Middle East and was very, very Muslim at the time and was realizing that I was gay and queer, I was like really trying to occupy Islam solely and kind of reject that other side. And then when I came to the UK and I was 13 and then the Iraq war happened in that year, 2003. So I was like in the UK and the UK was like bombing Iraq and I'm from Iraq. But I also really had quite a negative attitude towards Islam because of some of the homophobia I experienced. Mm. As a young person, I just wanted to be like, am I British or am I Arab? Am I this or am I that? Amru is not 14 anymore and how they think about this stuff has changed. They are no longer choosing between their different identities. My other name is Glamru. That's my drag name. Glamru is empowered, acerbic and Muslim. She challenges ideas about who can do drag and what a Muslim looks like. I love dressing up, you know, as a full queer drag queen who's also wearing an Islamic abaya, you know, it's trying to just say, I'm all of these things in one go. It just brings it all together for me on an emotional level. While Amru and I check some of the same boxes, British and Arab, we're both trying to reconsider them. Whether it's through drag or data journalism, we're trying to figure out what those categories are good for and what they're not. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Am I Normal? I'm Mona Chalabi and I'm a data journalist. So I see categories in data every day. Sometimes they're helpful and sometimes not so much. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Back when I first started working with data, I got this job with a big NGO that was trying to help people that were displaced by violence in Iraq. The organisation was based in Jordan, not Iraq. And I worked with a team whose job it was to put together questionnaires for Iraqis. One major survey that they were conducting asked the question, what do you need, blankets or food? My job was to analyse the questionnaire results and make these fancy 3D pie charts. The organisation would then take my charts to donors and raise millions of dollars to buy blankets or food. One day, some of the people who were conducting these surveys flew into Oman for a conference. 
I'll never forget that I was sitting in this hotel conference room when this tall Kurdish guy in a dapper tan suit came over to me and said, you know, it's all wrong, right? The data is all wrong. I was confused. He explained, well, your questions asked if people needed blankets or food, but what they actually need is electricity generators. But that just wasn't an option on the survey. So the Iraqis were checking the boxes that were available to them. And the data we had, all that money that was spent on blankets and food, it was kind of missing the point. It was a rude awakening. But it helped me to see the limits of checkboxes, particularly when they are either or. And people are left with a binary choice. In 2020, as part of my job, I was covering the US census. The census happens every 10 years in the US. It's a chance to count the population using categories like race, ethnicity, gender, age, and so much more. So I don't know if you know, but in the US, there's no Arab category on the US census. Do you know that? No, I didn't know that, actually. Any other ethnic group is usually the one that I tick. The 2020 census listed Middle Eastern nationalities like Lebanese and Egyptian when it was guiding respondents about who should check themselves as racially white. Middle Easterners who didn't feel comfortable with that could check a box labelled other down at the bottom of the form. So Arabs got a choice between white and other. I think being constantly other on forms as I was younger helped to reinforce the idea that I was just other. I agree. Since not everyone from the Middle East is ethnically Arab, white might well be a label that some people would feel comfortable using. But suggesting that the white box could be a decent option for the rest of us frankly felt ridiculous, especially considering the racism that Arabs have to deal with in the US. We're not treated like we're white, so why would we check the white box? I'm just wondering how kind of malign the political intention of that is, of of not putting Arab on the form. My head went to the exact same place, because I know that the government uses the census to allocate resources. I know that census numbers and categories can be used for good. They have all sorts of implications for the kind of education a kid gets, to the kind of housing people live in and the healthcare services people have access to. Census numbers determine how billions of government dollars are allocated to communities every year. And the programmes they fund really make a difference. Let me give you an example. By the 60s, the US government had looked at how inequality was playing out in the job market, specifically for black people in the wake of segregation and enslavement. The research showed who was being hired, fired, and who was advancing to management roles. And surprise, surprise, racism was rampant. This was hard evidence that was difficult to ignore. It was the height of public support during the civil rights movement. And the government realised that if they were serious about equality, or at least about covering their asses, they'd need to do better. So the government enacted policy that meant that federal agencies had to hit certain hiring targets. They had to enact recruiting initiatives for black applicants, and they had to be transparent about the race of their employees. And that didn't just apply to the government itself. It was also anyone who wanted to contract with the government. 
All of these policies were part of an initiative called Affirmative Action. And they helped. One study that was conducted between 1974 and 1980 showed that the rate of non-white employment went up by 20% for federal contractors. Meanwhile, companies who didn't use affirmative action policies only increased their non-white employment by 12%. To this day, the US Department of Labor requires federal employers to have affirmative action programs in place. So the law says that people need to have access to public contracts regardless of their race, disability status or sexual orientation. The Arab American Institute estimates that there are about 3.7 million Arabs in the US. With no separate box to tick, that's 3.7 million people that are not being properly categorised in the census. And that means that the government isn't tracking if we're getting our fair share. So, checkboxes matter. And it's not just about federal dollars or jobs. It's cultural too. Amru sees this lack of representation all the time when they're pitching US TV shows that might appeal to an Arab audience. I definitely noticed it in my like line of work that the Arab audience feels quite speculative and hypothetical. I will pitch, you know, all Arab casts or an all an all Arab show or whatever, and commissioners will think, ooh, is this niche or is there the audience for it? And it, because I suppose they don't have the data, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that they're not going to commission the Arab work because they don't really know that there's an Arab audience looking for it. And the other aspect of that is representation. So because we have no idea how many Arabs there are in the US, it's impossible to fight for things like political representation, representation in the in the arts, in cinema, in TV. It's like, oh, they are there somewhere, aren't they? But who knows where they are? Yeah. And it's like, well, I guarantee you, if you make the show, you'll see how many there are. If you aren't visible in the data set, It can be like your very existence is being erased. Last summer, I was quarantined in my Brooklyn apartment. The pandemic was raging and my street was eerily quiet. I was hunkered down painting these silhouettes of New Yorkers I was no longer seeing every day. Two men in baseball caps huddled over a chessboard. A woman with a baby strapped to her chest. A skateboarder, a Hasidic man, a middle schooler, a guy selling ice cream. All portraits of people in New York City. The painting was part of a project that I'd started long before the pandemic, before I was suddenly spending all my time alone in my living room and missing the busy bodegas, parties and just top-notch people watching. The idea was to turn New York census data into 100 characters that would represent and celebrate the city. To do it, I studied the data to figure out exactly how to distribute race, age, disability status and gender among the 100 characters. The portraits looked simple. They were these overlapping line drawings with bright colours. But in reality, each person I drew had loads of complicated calculations behind them that weren't always visible in the painting. For example, I drew some characters with obvious indications of disability, like a wheelchair or a cane. But I purposely left others without the obvious indicators. 
I wanted to represent people with disabilities that aren't visible. Other drawings showed people living in wealth or poverty, but you'd never know it at a glance. Only I knew because I had the data. In many ways, despite all my research, constructing these characters felt almost impossible. See, these New Yorkers were all approximations. They were constructs that were designed to stand in for larger groups. Boiling down more than 8 million people to just 100 generalizations meant that there would have to be gaps. I could never illustrate all the ways that people represent multiple identities. So I did my best with the data that was available. I tried to make something that was beautiful and informative. When I was done, I stepped back to look at my seven-foot-wide painting of New Yorkers, and I realised something. Although I had spent months trying to create a picture of the city that was as accurate as possible, I wasn't up there on the canvas because I wasn't in the data. So I didn't draw myself in my own project in my own city. I'd have to try to find myself in some of the other census checkboxes, like age, marital status or sex. In theory, sure, I could look like one of the brown characters in my painting, but the census data wouldn't tell me if that character really was Arab. That's a problem, because seeing is important, but so is just knowing the facts. The kind of major crises of anxiety I've had in my life have been attempting to fit into one category. Yeah. I mean, I saw that you tweeted the other day this screenshot of the three gender boxes on a on a form, one of which was non-binary, right? Oh, yeah, I did. Mm. It's so rare for a data set to include non-binary people. What did it mean to you to see that option on the form? It's actually funny. It was a form in America for a union that I'm joining in America, the WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America that I was joining. It was just ticking a form and it just made me feel a little bit more comfortable. And it was so casual that I was like, wow, did this kill anyone? On the census and across most official forms, there are only two gender boxes available for ticking. Woman and man. But Amru doesn't identify as either. They're non-binary. And just like counting men and women, it is important to count non-binary people too. It's good for them to have the data to know how many trans or non-binary screenwriters are working in America because actually, like, data just came out Mm -hmm. that, like, in four years there's not been a lead trans character in a single Hollywood movie. It's interesting because those words that you use of queer or non-binary, they're almost categories that are about critiquing categories? Yeah, I I actually think that's a really nice way of putting it. And I think that's maybe why it makes so many people uncomfortable because, you know, a lot of the crisis that people have about non-binary identities is that it destabilizes something that they have taken as given or fixed their whole life. And I mean, I understand where that anxiety comes from of, oh God, how am I going to place you? It's obvious that we don't all fit into narrow definitions and that trying to fit can be harmful. By definition, categories are generalizations. And as you start to get into finer categories, it's like Russian dolls. Eventually, you just get down to individuals. Amaru got me thinking about these smaller units in a whole new way. Quantum physics looks at the really granular detail of 
the world, so subatomic particles, like smaller than atoms, just the like minutia of physical reality. As a college student trying out different classes for fun, Amru got into physics by accident. And when they took some lectures in quantum physics, they were captivated. See, standard physical principles are Newtonian physics. Those attempt to find the fixed scientific laws that govern our world, like cause and effects of mechanical force, pulleys and levers, you know, things like that. But... Quantum physics basically contradicts a lot of what we thought was given in standard physical principles. So like if A happens, B happens, or if you pull, something will be pushed. Quantum physics shows that those events are only part of the picture and there's actually other things happening on a subatomic level which don't happen in observable reality. In the course, a professor explained an experiment that is at the foundation of quantum physics. It's called the double-slit experiment. In one version of this experiment, electrons are fired through a wall with two slits in it, and a machine measures whether they go through the left or right slit. But every now and then, the same electron moves through both slits at the same time. The same particle can be in multiple places at once. Two versions of the same event happening at the same time. Not one checkbox, but two. it was a revelation. Quantum physics shows us that what's understood as reality is just an approximation of what's happening subatomically. Like my painting, it's a practical representation of something that is much, much more complex. If subatomic particles, which literally we're made out of, everything's made out of them, can do multiple things at the same time, why are we so fixed on rigid categories? This experiment is something that Amru returns to time and again when their gender is being questioned or invalidated. There's a really interesting parallel here with data because you're saying that our understanding of science approximates the truth. Is that, is that how you described it? What it more is is that what is observed is recorded as the truth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's when I started. Was like, it was like, oh, wow, there's actually like physical proof that the world is inherently kind of queer. Imagine how much better our understanding would be if we just asked refugees what they needed instead of asking them to choose between blankets and food. I usually quite like it when a form comes along which just says, you know... Write it in. ...other, and then you can, yeah, write it in. You know, I actually have trans friends who say, I'm a trans woman, I'm a woman... But in my perfect world, I wouldn't need those definitions. Yeah, but, yeah. but within the existing... Look, I mean, we have to live, right? Like, uh, the, the subatomic world sounds like chaos, to be honest. It does sound quite stressful and, like, we need to organise it. It's kind of like, in a perfect world, maybe we wouldn't have any categories and we'd simply be able to, like, observe the world without any of these lenses. But we can't. So mm. how do you reconcile those two things? The fact that... The categories are overly simplistic, but also that they're necessary. Yeah, like, that's a really interesting question. And I actually think that that need to reconcile it should be resisted a little bit to look at reality itself as constructed, which is exactly what queer theory does. 
when I started doing drag at university, I was like only occupying my like gay identity and I wasn't including my Arab heritage in it because I thought that was like oppositional mm. towards my queer identity. And so every time that I've tried to have one stable identity, it's men sacrificing another key part of myself. For Amru, the answer to the world's obsession with categories is Glamru. Up on stage with her heels and Quran, Glamru celebrates the farce of trying to fit into the invented categories of woman and Arab. She pushes at the limits of their definition. Thinking about categories a little bit more like drag might help us to take them for what they are, performative. Categories are just flashy approximations of reality that serve a functional purpose. They are not reality itself. More than getting the right categories, it's important that we're open to our categories being adaptable. I'm not for like abolishing categories, but more just like finding as many of them as possible and realizing that it's just really complicated to just be slightly more open about the fluidity of these things. It's not an, abol- it's not an abolition thing. It's a sort of just an expanding thing. I love that because I feel like you're saying both that the pursuit of knowledge is beautiful, the desire to complicate categories, to keep on finding new language to understand our world, but also to accept that we're never going to get it right and that that pursuit will never end in a perfect understanding of reality. Yeah, you actually have to sit with the discomfort and be like, this is chaos and that's okay. When we become wedded to categories as these factual absolutes, we lose sight of the way that categories are fictions that we invented as a tool. If we could remember that, then maybe our understanding of reality would be a little bit more honest, more flexible and more inclusive. And maybe by making a habit of questioning when our categories are serving us and when they're not, we can get better at refining them. Because one day, I'd like to see myself drawn as a little character in my beloved New York City. Am I Normal is part of the TED Audio Collective. It's hosted and produced by me, Mona Chalabi, and brought to you by the teams at TED and Transmitter Media. This episode was produced by Jess Shane and Joanne DeLuna. Sarah Nix is Transmitter's executive editor. Wilson Sayre and Lacey Roberts are our managing producers. And Greta Cohn is our executive producer. The TED team is Michelle Quinn, Ban Ban Cheng and Roxanne Hylash. Jennifer Nam is our researcher and fact checker. Additional production by Domino Sound. The original theme song is by Sasami. Michelle Macklem is our sound designer and mix engineer. After we made this episode, the US issued its first gender-neutral passport. Now, people who don't identify as either male or female are able to use passports with an X designation. It is a milestone for non-binary people's rights. We are back next week with more Am I Normal? Make sure that you follow the show in your favourite podcast app so that you can get every episode delivered straight to your device. And if you enjoyed the show and want to support us, that's great. Hit the share button to send it to everyone you know who has ever felt like they didn't fit into just one category.